from uh, the Bible now. So we're continuing our way through Luke. And today's reading comes from the first chapter of Luke, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay, I'm just going to pray for Rowan and he's going to come speak to us. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that it brings uh, life and truth to those who believe in you. Uh, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be speaking through Rowan now as he delivers this message and that we would have uh, soft hearts uh, and ready ears so that we might um, not only just hear your word uh, but put it into practice in our lives. Um, so that we might live as Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, every day. Amen. Great to see you here at the EU Public Meeting. My name is Rowan Kemp. I have the privilege of working here at the University as a chaplain. I've been invited to speak by the EU on these first couple of weeks of the year, looking at Luke's Gospel under the, the big heading of Essential Jesus. But today's talk, today's talk is... is this. Factual Jesus. I don't know what the brackets mean, they just sort of looked cool as I typed it in. No, (laughs) the idea is that we're trying to work out how trustworthy are the accounts of Jesus that we read in the New Testament. Let me tell you why that's important. A couple of years ago I received a fairly strange Christmas present. I guess it wasn't too strange compared to some of the things I've received over the years. But it was a book uh, called Moldavia. It was a tourist guide to this fictional country called Moldavia. Fully this was a complete and utter work of fiction running to, I don't know, somewhere sort of in, towards 200 pages long Every word of it, fiction, to a country that doesn't exist. The fact that some people could spend, how many hours would it take to write a book and to illustrate a book, completely made up. But that's what they did. This travel guide to Moldavia, a place that doesn't exist. That's how much effort they went to. It was a complete work of fiction. The interesting thing was, it was pretending to be fact. Fiction pretending to be fact, but... You could tell pretty quickly that it was a work of fiction because I, I seem to rec- recollect that if you looked on the back, you know how sometimes down near the barcode they have some sort of classification of the book? This was under humour. <laughs> it gives away before you've even got inside the cover, right? But this idea of fiction masquerading as fact can be more deceptive than that. Quite a few years ago now there was a, a huge, massive outcry because a particular publication, I believe it was German, came out with what it said were transcripts from what they called the Hitler Diaries. Apparently Adolf Hitler had kept a diary leading right up to the last days of his life. This had now been discovered and they started publishing it in their magazine. 
there was a huge outcry because what was this, what was this saying about the person of Adolf Hitler and the study of history and all that sort of stuff. And then it was finally revealed after quite some time that this too was actually a complete fabrication. It was a work of fiction masquerading as fact with no humour written on the cover. This was actually just someone, just they generated this piece of work and tried to pretend it was fact and sent all sorts of ripples out there. Over the last couple of weeks here in the EU as we've been just digging into this book of uh, book about Jesus written by this guy, Luke, we've seen some amazing things. So, first week of the year we sort of talked about the um, disposable Jesus. How according to Luke chapter 20, if you think you can just disregard Jesus, if you can think you can ignore Jesus, then that is both a deluded option and also a dangerous option. And just two weeks ago we talked about, from Luke chapter 4, we talked about the preposterous Jesus. The Jesus who comes saying, he can give you the freedom that you truly crave. And then last week we saw Jesus talking about that he can give you the forgiveness that you most desperately need. There's all sort of pictures of the good news of the Kingdom of God that Jesus says he came to proclaim according to Luke's accounting. That's what we've been sort of exploring, this good news of the Kingdom of God. My question today is, given that we've jumped into Luke 20 and then Luke 4 and Luke 5, my question is, do you have any good reason to trust what you're reading here? I mean, given Moldavia, a tourist guide, given Hitler diaries, Could not this just be a work of fiction? Could not this be made up? And you see why that matters? Because of the incredible things that it is proclaiming are possible. The freedom that you crave, the forgiveness that you need, that Jesus is at the centre of all of world history. These are big claims. Can you trust it? So where we're going today is we're going right back to Luke chapter 1. We're actually going to go and look at where Luke starts this account, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, to see whether we get access to the actual Jesus. Is there a factual Jesus that we can have access to through what Luke's writing? So that's what we're doing. Now, there's three headings uh, today. Luke's plan, Luke's perspective and Luke's purpose. That's what we're looking at today as we sort of work through this chapter. So, you've got the verses hopefully in front of you because we'll do a little bit of flicking around Luke's Gospel or you can see them up here on the screen for you. So, let's think first of all about Luke's plan. Luke's plan. And you see there in verse 3 he says, Therefore, since I myself, talking about himself, Luke, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus. Luke says he's writing some sort of orderly account. Now, you get little hints of what he means by this even in the very form of these first four verses. Now, unless you are au fait with ancient literature, you probably won't pick up. But he has used a very stylised sort of introduction, very common in the writing of his day when people wanted to write certain sorts of works. So, uh, Uh, I'll give you some examples. Uh, Here is um, a quote from Josephus, who is a Jewish historian. He wrote a two-volume work uh, called Against Appion. This is how volume one started, in part. He says, Most excellent Epaphroditus, 
I devote a brief treatise in order to instruct all who desire to know the truth concerning the antiquity of our race. And when he starts volume two, he starts, in the first volume of my work, Most Esteemed Epaphroditus, he, he mentions some dignitary in both the beginnings of both volumes. Now, you've got your Bible there. You can see here in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And you know where volume 2 is, right, of this? It's the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke. So, if you flick forward in your Bible to Acts chapter 1, you can see how Luke starts his second volume. Probably written in two volumes just because of the length that you could write on a scroll, given that that's probably what he wrote it on. You just couldn't, you just couldn't sort of append along the scroll, it wouldn't work, so therefore he had to write it onto two scrolls. So volume 2 starts in Acts chapter 1 verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And so he goes forth. You see here, Luke is, um, if not echoing Josephus directly, he's sort of they're both copying a normal sort of style if you're going to write a two-volume two historical sort of work. I'll give you another example, which is sort of very interesting. Uh, this is by a guy called Dioscorides. Yes, I know you haven't read much of him, neither have I. Dioscorides, who was a first century, so same sort of time frame as Luke, first century army physician a doctor in the army, right? That's interesting because the New Testament tells us that Luke was a doctor. So, it's sort of interesting. This guy wrote a work called Materia Medicia, uh, Medisa, uh, Medica, sorry. Medi- well, I've never done that. What do I know? <laughs> Materia Medica, right? Let me read to you some of the opening of this work. He says, and notice the similarities. Although not many ancient but also modern writers have composed works on the preparation, the power and the testing of drugs, my dearest Arius, I shall try to prove to you that no empty or unreasonable impulse has moved me to undertake this work. Do you notice the similarities to verse 1 here of Luke's Gospel? Many have undertaken to draw up to this account and then he addresses the sort of person, the person, the sort of the dignitary and then he justifies what he's going to do there's very, what you're seeing here is just Luke's introduction is placing itself in the same sort of writing as history, Josephus, and actually as sort of medical treaties, scientific sort of works of the one I just recited there. Luke, in the very form he's adopted, he's saying, this is what I'm trying to do. Now, yes, you could say, well, that's all just play acting, he's not really trying to do that, but that's what he, at least on the surface, that's what he's presenting himself in the same ballpark as that sort of writing. Okay? So, we're looking here at Luke's plan, an orderly account. The first thing we note here is that there is a hint of what he is trying to do even in the sort of way he introduces the work. He aligns himself with this sort of tradition. Second thing, notice here that he's, he's following in the footsteps of others. He says that explicitly, right? He's following in the footsteps of others. He says there, verses 1 and 2, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Two different things, two different groups 
of people going on there or two different um, communication events going on there. First of all, verse 2, there are these people who from the first, we're told, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Who are these eyewitnesses and servants of the word who've handed down what Theophilus has been taught and what Luke was taught? Who were the eyewitnesses and servants of the word? Well, it seems to me the way that Luke uses the word um, witness and the way he used the word servant in both Luke and Acts, he seems to me to be talking about what we would call the apostles. There's sort of 12 designated authoritative eyewitnesses that Jesus chose to be the ones who would communicate his truth to the world, actually. That's who he's referring to. So Luke's saying that he, Luke, and the office, we've received this teaching as handed down to us by those who were the eyewitnesses and servants of the word. You can chase up that sort of language in Luke chapter 24, where Jesus says to the twelve, you are my witnesses of these things. You can chase up in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. Uh, you can see it in another place, Acts 13, 30 to 31. I might just look that up. Acts 13, 30 to 31. You can see the particular role that these eyewitnesses and servants were to play. Acts 13, 30 to 31. Paul is uh, giving a speech and he says this from verse 30. But God raised Jesus from the dead and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. That is those who travelled the whole course of Jesus' public three-year ministry. They are now his witnesses to our people, talking to the Jews. So he's saying that those particular people who travelled with him the whole way, they are now being designated as Jesus' witnesses. If you jump a bit further, you can look it up later, to Acts chapter 26, verse 16. Acts 26, 16. Paul himself is included in this group of the servants and witnesses. So Acts 26, 16. Uh, you can see that Paul recounting where he met the Lord Jesus he said that uh, Jesus says, or Paul says, Jesus said to me that I will be appointed by him as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and you will see of me. So what you get is who are these eyewitnesses? Who are the servants of the word? You get this picture. You get what we call or it's called in the New Testament, the Twelve, that is the designated apostles, and you get one more who's then included. This is Paul. I'll give him legs. Here, here's some others. Here's John. John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. Here's someone else that's called this guy Matthew. We know he was sort of one of the twelve. Here's another one, Peter. You might have heard of Simon Peter. So, you know, these are the twelve... Here's Paul, right? That's who the eyewitnesses and servants of the word are. What's Luke saying? Go back to the text. He's saying, we've had the truths about Jesus handed down to us by these people. They're the ones who've handed down the truth to us. 
However, notice then what he says in verse 1. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled that we were taught. So there's other people, some other group, maybe overlapping, maybe not, some other group who have recorded, created what he says here, a narrative, compiled a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled. Now, you can notice this when you act, if you compare Luke's Gospel to the other Gospels. Now, you've probably never done this, but lots of scholars have. They've taken Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and compared their content. Not just the stories, the truths are in there, but even to the language of what particular language and words and phrases are used. And they've compared them, doing what they call source criticism. What they've discovered is that it is pretty clear that if you look at, say, what I'll call the Gospel of Mark, can you see that up the back or I need to write bigger? That's alright? Yeah, you're young, you've got good eyes. Gospel of Mark, right? You look at the Gospel of Mark and you look at the Gospel of Matthew and you look at the Gospel of Luke, according to Luke, and you look at the Gospel of John. There are four New Testament Gospels. What do you notice when you look at these things? What you notice is that a very high degree of Mark's Gospel appears in both Matthew and Luke. You can find uh, most of Mark appears in both those other Gospels. Not just the stories, but often to phrases or particular words. There might be a little bit of change of vocab here and there, but it, it pretty much... And that's why most people assume, most scholars assume, Mark was written first. Because it just seems the, the easiest answer is that Mark was used by both Matthew and Luke. There is also a whole lot of other information which scholars, because they like to be obtuse, have called Q, which stands for source. (laughs) If you're German. Anyway, so, there's this, they posit, we don't, we don't, we've never heard of such, we've never, no one, no one has a copy of Q, or even a copy of a copy of a copy. No one has this document. But the reason scholars think it probably existed is, aside from the stuff that's in Mark, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that is in Matthew and in Luke. Both very similar, but not in Mark. So they suggest, they posit, that both Matthew and Luke use this other source Q which they think when you look at what is in both Matthew and Luke and not in Mark, it seems to be a lot of sayings of Jesus. Now, why, why wouldn't we have that? Well, the thing is, if all of Q got included in Matthew and Luke, which beefed it out with other useful information, probably Q got into different... Why would you bother to go back to Q, given you've got all the information in these better and more expansive sources? That's how they suggest that maybe we don't have this document anymore. But then... When you look at Matthew and Luke, there's also other stuff. Stuff that is unique to Matthew and stuff that's unique to Luke, got in any of the other Gospels. So they also suggest, well, maybe Matthew had another document, which we'll helpfully call M, and Luke had a collection of information. It may not have been a document, it may have just been information, really. There's original Luke material that he's added to Q and to the Gospel of Mark and come up with his Gospel Matthew's had his own unique material him, added to Luke, added to, sorry, to Hugh, added to Mark, come up with his gospel. Does that make some sort of sense? You get it? Right. 
Oh, what about John? It's completely independent. Doesn't just doesn't seem to really use any of the others at all. Very straightforward, which is interesting historically, right? You do careful reading of John, you see he's, he's got all sorts of detailed geographic, timing information. It's clearly written, even though it has incredible th- theology in it, it's clearly grounded in actual history and events and places. So its historicity, I don't think, is up for grabs, but it clearly seems to be quite written quite independently of these others, which is useful, right? How does this, these documents, tie up to that board, which is now too high for me? <laughs> How are these connected, right? Luke said, okay, we know stuff from the eyewitnesses and servants, but many others have undertaken to write an account. He's probably referring to Mark. He may be referring to Q, if it exists. He may well be referring to other bits of information that he sourced out. For instance, Luke chapter 1 and 2 about the infancy narratives, that's what they're called, about Jesus' birth, about John the Baptist's birth, not in any of the other Gospels, seem to form, though, a coherent sort of unity Maybe that existed as a sort of an individual document that someone wrote up and circulated. We don't know, right? But saying he's saying there have been these other, other accounts. These tie in to the witnesses. How? Well, Matthew was one of them. <laughs> right? John was one of them. Right? Yeah, you can't do that on PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> you've got Paul and you've got Peter. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole history of it, but it's very interesting. Um, there, is a, there is an ancient piece of writing um, from the, I, I, I think it's from the second century, which actually says that there was this uh, very early Christian leader who, who had learnt the Gospel from John. And he writes to his to someone else, he says, I heard the elder John say that Mark got his testimony about Jesus from Peter. I'm just giving you one little historical datum, right? Do with it what you like. But there is a suggestion, therefore, that it seems that Peter got his material, oh, sorry, Mark got his material from Peter and wrote it down. And what about Luke? Well, Luke, we know, was a companion of Paul. We know this right throughout Luke's Gospel and the Book of Acts. Very interestingly, by the time you actually get uh, halfway through the Book of Acts, you can see that Luke is there with Paul. Whereas before, all all of sort of um, Luke's Gospel, then half of Acts, it's sort of Luke writes in the, you know, third person, they did this, they did this, so and so did this. Suddenly, halfway through the book of Acts, Acts 16, suddenly there's we. And it's apparent that Luke joined up on Paul's sort of journeying around in Troas in Acts 16 and then there's various points then where it reverts back to third person, so clearly Luke wasn't with Paul and then he appears again, chapter 20, 21, chapters 26 and 27, I think it is. Um, so, there's a couple of places where Luke appears in the second half of Acts. So, clearly he knew Paul. You can look at Paul's own writings. A couple of times, Paul talks about um, Luke being with him. Uh, particularly, Colossians chapter 4, 
verses 10 and 14 tell you that when Paul, sitting in prison, wrote the letter to the Colossian Christians, he says, Mark is with me. Mark. Mark. Mark is with you. And he says, Luke is with me. Mark and Luke were both there with Paul. When Paul. You see, they know each other. They have access to one another's work, research. They are able to testify to the truth that handed down by these eyewitnesses. Luke writes as an insider here. As an insider. Okay, so that's a little bit, yes, we can see that um, within Luke's accounts, yet, account here, yes, there were these other accounts that he seems to have drawn on. So it's recorded for us in the narratives. Very interesting though when he says in verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up a narrative or an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us. He's not just saying other people have written down a chronology. It's not just... I mean, if you're, if you're not an art student, if you're an engineer or a science or an economist, maybe... Well, and you've never gone to school. I assume you've done some history at school. But like, you, you might still think you can write objective history. You can't. No one can write objective history. Postmodernism is correct at that point, right? Everybody writes from a perspective, everybody writes from a position. All historians are selective. I was chatting to a guy uh, in the EU who's doing a PhD in history. He was telling me he's just gone over and uh, done some research in the UK. He, photo- he took photos of documents. I said, oh, how many documents? I'm thinking, yeah, 100, 200, 300, it's going to be a PhD. He said, oh, 9,560 photos. <laughs> For two weeks. <laughs> Is he going to include all of that information in his PhD? No. He's going to be highly selective, highly selective. Well, that's not fair, that's not objective, that's not true. He's got it. How else can you do it? Right? He's going to be highly selective and he's going to arrange the data to tell a story. That's outrageous. He's going to make a case. He's going to argue. Yes, that's what history does, that's what historians do. They arrange material to present a case, to persuade you. That's what Luke's done. Don't think that any gospel is a purely objective record of bare chronological fact. No, there are events and interpretations here. The key thing to realise is just because it's written by an insider, as we all are in some circle, just because it's written by an insider does not mean that it's not reliable. I think the questions you've got to ask when you read any history and therefore ask when you read something like the New Testament documents, these Gospels in particular, is, first of all, is, is it based in actuality? Is it based in actual events? Is it grounded in some sort of reality? That's the first thing to ask. Second thing to ask is this. Does the interpretation that is implied or explicit in this history, does the interpretation cohere with other details, other things we know, other sources? Does it cohere with wider facts that we know? And when you apply that to the Gospel, you see it does. There's all sorts of external, um, external confirmation of the details you can record in the Gospels. You can just search any sort of reputable book, reputable book on the historicity of the New Testament. It'll sort of point those out to you. Third question to ask is, what, about, what sort of explanatory power does this interpretation provide? Does it help me understand 
even more than what's in the text? Does it help make sense of the world, our experiences? Those are the sort of questions I think you need to ask to evaluate the history. And I think on those sort of criteria, the Gospels and the New Testament stand tall. They stand tall on those sort of criteria. You might want to take that up later with me. Okay, so, yes, there was this oral tradition passed down. Yes, there were these other narratives that Luke's used. Yes, Luke writes as an insider, but that's not actually a problem in and of itself, even though he is writing to persuade you of a position, namely the identity of Jesus. But the interesting thing here is that also, uh, moving on from uh, Luke's plan, is Luke's perspective. What is the interpretation that Luke tries to provide? Now you'll notice there, in verse 1, Luke says, Many have undertaken to draw up a narrative of the things, or literally the events, that have been fulfilled amongst us. Very interesting, Luke's focus, what do you think Luke's focus is in his Gospel? Well, you would say, the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And you'd be wrong. Luke's focus is not the person of Jesus. Well, sort of is, sort of is that is actually his focus is are the particular events that have taken place in and through and with Jesus. It's the events that are significant, even more significant than the person of Jesus himself because there is a greater story being told here. What's the greater story? He says there, a narrative of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us. That's the key word. The big story Luke's trying to tell is not just, hey, this dude called Jesus appeared in the Middle East and he did crazy stuff, said amazing things and then he died and came alive again. I mean, that's a pretty good story. That's not the story Luke's trying to tell. That's a small part of the story he's trying to say is, this man Jesus did these things and these things happened to him as part of a fulfilment, part of a bigger plan. Who's the one doing the fulfilling. Well, Jesus is the focus, but who's the one who's actually fulfilling the promises and the... It's the living God. The living God is fulfilling the promises and the word that he gave through this person, Jesus. That's the big story. They're events with a greater context. What sort of events is he focusing on in this Gospel? Well, it's, it's all the events of Jesus' life. From his birth to his public ministry, to his death, to his resurrection and what happened after he was raised and ascended. Right, did you get that? The, what are the events he's talking about? He's saying birth, that's chapters 1 to 3. Right? Chapters 1 to 3. And if you trace through these, and I've got a whole list of references so I can't give you, if you read these chapters you'll see that the idea of fulfilment is <laughs> laced throughout this, these chapters. It is everywhere in these chapters, time and time again. When the angel speaks to Mary, there's a note of fulfilment of God's promises. When um, Mary is with the young, uh, when Mary, Mary takes, uh, Joseph takes the baby Jesus to Simeon, there's a note of fulfilment. When they take the baby to Anna, there's the note of fulfilment. When the angels appear to the shepherds, there's a note of fulfilment. Over and over again through the just from these opening chapters, you get the idea that what is happening here right from the beginning is part of a bigger story where God is fulfilling his covenant, his promises to his people that will bring blessing to the Gentiles, to the very ends of the earth. So you see that the birth, 
You see it in his ministry. We saw this two weeks ago in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah talking about the great day that God's going to bring. He says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Right? Fulfillment happening there in the ministry of Jesus. You see it in his death and his resurrection and in him being proclaimed to the world. And you can see all of those in Luke 24 where Jesus says the scriptures had to be fulfilled that after the Messiah died and raised again that forgiveness for, of, for sins, repentance for the forgiveness of sins proclaimed in his name for all the nations of the world. What you see is the whole idea is that everything about Jesus is being fulfilled. Here's, a, here's an interesting little kicker for you. When did this stop? Birth, okay, yes, 2,000 years ago. Ministry, yes, three years, public ministry. Death, yes, particular day, you know, we're going to remember it next Friday, right? Good, good Friday. Resurrection, remember that Easter day, yes. Proclamation to the world, oh, that's the book of Acts. And everything else from there. Proclamation to the world started after Jesus had been raised and blessed his disciples with the Spirit. That proclamation to the world goes on. Today. What I'm saying is this, this is why it's important, when he says the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, he's including you. Luke wasn't there. Luke wasn't there in the ministry. Luke wasn't there at the death and not a witness to the resurrection. Luke only appears halfway through Acts after this has already started. But he says the events that have been fulfilled amongst us, that is the Christian community, because as this goes on, even today, you are there. You're part, we're part of it. These are the thing, things that have been fulfilled amongst us. And he writes that account in both Luke and Acts. All right, I'm getting a bit head up. All right. <laughs> How should you respond to this? How should you respond to this sort of document that's been written about fulfilment of the great plans of God? The key is there in the text, right back in the birth narratives, I reckon. What sort of response do you make when God is fulfilling stuff, fulfilling his promises and word? Two key verses here. Chapter 1, verse 37, and chapter 1, verse 45. Have a look with me at these particular verses. Luke chapter 1, verse 37. The angel has just appeared to Mary, and you get this truth. The angel says, No word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. You see why it's important if the whole thing is about fulfilment? No word from God will ever fail. As what God has said will happen, how do you respond? Verse 45, Elizabeth says to Mary, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfil his promises to her. When we trust the promises of God, trust the fulfilment that has come in the person of Jesus, we are truly blessed by God. Because that's when you receive the freedom that we crave. That's when you receive the forgiveness that we need when we trust this one. Okay, so I've talked about Luke's 
plan. I talked about Luke's perspective, which is about fulfilment. The simple point to just say with Luke's purpose is he was trying to give you confidence. He's trying to give you confidence. You can see it there in verse 4. He says, I've written this orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty or the truth or have confidence about the things that you've been taught. So this is how I'm going to end. Three R's. Three R's of why Luke's Gospel matters to you or why it should. Three R's. First is this. Reliability. Our faith is nothing if it is not grounded in actual events. It is just like a travel book about a fictional country unless it's grounded in actual events of history. This book that Luke has written gives you confidence that yes, it was grounded in real events. Right? So if you're not sure about whether you can trust what you've been hearing about Jesus from your friends or at church or here on campus, read it. It's a historical document written to be evaluated and judged. Read it. Because it gives us, I think it tells us that yes, what we've heard about this Jesus is reliable. Second R, it's revelation. What we get here is not just stories about a man who walked around in the Middle East. We get here events and their interpretation that this is what was happening in this guy was the fulfilling of God's great purposes for all of humanity extending to the very ends of the earth. You get revelation when you read this book. Enlightenment. Truth from God about the big story. The third thing we get is refreshment. Refreshment. Luke has written this so that you can have confidence, certainty in what you have been taught about Jesus if you're a Christian person. I want to encourage you as we head towards Easter in just less than two weeks' time, if you're feeling flat in your Christian life, if you're feeling disconnected from Jesus, why don't you meet him again? Meet him again this Easter in the account that was written for you of what things have been fulfilled amongst us. Meet him again. Why don't you take some time this Easter break just to read Luke's Gospel and meet Jesus again. I think if you do that, you will find it truly spiritually refreshing because that's in part what has been written for. Thanks very much. Now, next week I do hope you can bring your friends because we will be outside on the lawn on the other side of Wentworth. Different talks. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Tuesday, Jesus' trial. Wednesday, Jesus' death. Thursday, Jesus' resurrection. Bring your friends. We hope that actually they will hear something of the living Lord Jesus this Easter. Thanks. Can you hand in your little comment cards on the way out? That would be fabulous. Please join us for afternoon tennis.